Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. All right, it's the day one leadership podcast. I am excited to be here with personal finance expert and consultant to the financial services industry. He's author of Stop Overthinking Your Money, a member of the Bottom Line panel on The National with Peter Mansbridge, the former host of Million Dollar Neighborhood on the Oprah Winfrey Network, a contributor to the Globe and Mail, Money Sense Magazine, and his blog, WhereDoesAllMyMoneyGo.com, was voted Canada's best investing blog. Most importantly, he is a quality human being. I am here with Preet Banerjee. Preet, man, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me on. Are you kidding? This I've been really excited about getting the chance to sit down with you. Now, I met Preet for the first time at a banquet, a management and economic students banquet at the University of Toronto. That's right. My God, I forgot about that. Yeah. I, well, I sat next to you. Like It was one of those things where, you know, those are usually death, right? Right. Like this. Yeah. And uh, I sat down and I don't know, I think we were both bored out of our skulls. <laughs> and uh, I just, we started to chat. And what happened was I, I made some comment about, I ran the leadership program at U of T, Scarborough campus, and commented, you know, it's, it's crazy that in the most debt-based society in history, we have no personal financial management in the education system. And that pretty much started a, a conversation. By the end of it, we were like, okay, you know what? This is going. This is going to happen. We're going to make this. We're going to make this happen. Yeah. And then we couldn't get them to give us a room, um, <laughs> in order to do it. And we'll get to that in a second. But before we roll into that, talk about the Preet Banerjee voyage because oh you have God. had anything but a conventional path to that list of accolades I listed off the top. That is very true. Uh, okay, so this is going to sound kind of weird, but my undergrad training was in neuroscience. And after my uh, graduation, the, I think it was the exact day after my last exam, I enrolled in the Bridgestone Racing Academy Mechanic and Race Car Driver Program. So I tried to become a professional race car driver. So I took the year to study there. And um, I spent a couple of years at the racetrack. And um, if that wasn't strange enough, going from neuroscience to auto racing, um, the racing school had basically three lines of business. So you have people who want to become professional race car drivers, people who just want to try it as a hobby, you know, one-time thing, and then you had a lot of corporate entertainment. So you could take 144 people to a scramble-style golf tournament, or for the same price, you can take 12 people to the racing school or something like that. So a lot of the clients that came came from, you know, blue chip companies and whatnot. And there were a lot of Bay Street brokerages. So I got to know a couple of guys on Bay Street because they would come to the racing school every now and then. And one guy in particular, uh, we became friends and he took me aside one day and he said, you know, when you're done wasting your time here, I want you to come work for me. I think you would do really well in my world. And I had no training whatsoever in finance. And uh, he said, yeah, listen, it's simple. Uh, we take your background in neuroscience, you do your CFA, and uh, you can be a biotech stock analyst, simple as pie. It's like, wow, you make it sound so simple. Um, so that was the impetus to move into the world of finance. Now, he retired uh, soon after I started my studies. And so I didn't have this neat little place to sort of just tuck myself into. So my golden ticket was kind of gone. But I had actually been bitten by the personal finance bug. So during that that studying, I realized, okay, I want to 
do more on the personal finance side as opposed to being an analyst. So that led into uh, a career as an advisor, stockbroker, planner. And, um, and then, uh, again, uh, if that wasn't weird enough, one day I'm driving to work and my girlfriend calls me up and she says, the W Network is holding an open casting call for people who want to be on-air talent. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, that's interesting. You know, whatever you need, let me know. I'll help you out. And she says, no, stupid. It's for you. I think you should audition. And so since I've had no sort of career philosophy or strategy or trajectory in mind, I've always followed the shiny ball philosophy of career management. I thought, what the heck? We'll give it a shot. So I threw in an audition tape and I totally, you know, I just didn't really take it too seriously because I didn't think who's going to pick a personal finance guy to be on TV on the W network. So because of that, I had no nerve shooting this audition tape and to make a long story short, ended up winning the contest and the prize was a development deal for my own show, which eventually turned into the hosting gig on the uh, million dollar neighborhood on the Oprah Winfrey network. Honestly, you could not plan this stuff out. If you tried it, just, I was just lucky. Now, I like the shiny ball philosophy. <laughs> Do you ever find like there's almost a, I find as you move through careers, younger people especially start calling and saying, hey, you know, yep. how do you do this? Do you ever feel like a sense of guilt when you want to look at them <laughs> and be like, I am the last person to ask because I right. can give you no workable, like the shiny ball philosophy is one of the best ways I've ever heard it. Yeah. And you and I have talked about this before. I don't think either of us have ever truly had the five-year plan where everything's mapped out because in my experience and about one year into a five-year plan, things go off the rails for me because again, I've got the shiny ball philosophy of career management. And this goes back to that, that guy who pulled me out of the racing world. Um, we chatted at length um, about life, the universe and everything. And there's a couple of things that he said that really stuck out. Um, and one was, you know, everybody is an opportunity. And he didn't mean that in the sense that everyone is there to be taken advantage of it or anything like that. It was, you know, every moment in your life is a fork in the road. And you can close those doors and say, no, I'm going to stick to whatever my plan is. Or you can open yourself up to the possibility and you can always say no later. So when it came to that audition, you know, I could have said, you know, it's never going to work. Why bother? But then I always say, no, you know, it's better to leave that door open. And if I don't want it down the road, I have the choice to say no, but I have to give myself the choice as opposed to not even making a go of it. So, so that's always sort of stuck with me. But to get to your point about it's true, I get people calling me up all the time saying, you know, can I buy a coffee, pick your brain, give some, give me some career advice. And I always say, listen, we could go through that exercise where we take 60 minutes and we can chat, get to know each other, give you some advice. Or I can just tell you what I wish someone had told me is that just be the hardest worker in the room. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, the, uh, the, Steve, the Steve Martin, be so good they can't ignore you philosophy. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's such, like, I always feel so flippant when people ask, like, well, how, whether it's being a speaker or really anything. Yeah. And, you know, I feel the same way. Like, I want to, I don't want to seem flippant, but, like, when it really comes down to it, be so good they can't ignore you, at whatever it is. Like, well, how do you become a professional speaker? Be incredibly good when they give you a stage. And, well, how do I do that? Well, work incredibly hard. Well, what about my brand and my right. <laughs> social media? I'm like, all nice. But if people give you an hour out of their lives and something doesn't happen, if you can't connect, then, you know, you can't really teach that. But do you think it's, that's the, like, the challenge is, I, I go back and go, would I do it again? Don't you think it's dangerous to say to people, well, the shiny ball philosophy, like, it worked for, for <laughs> right, us. Yeah. But do you ever feel like it's a dangerous thing? Like, should... 
shouldn't we be saying no have a plan but in some ways you know the the reference you probably just made is is the guy i once met in the desert who he said you know everyone thinks going slowly and carefully is better this is the guy who drove dune buggies for a living he goes mustafa yeah mustafa (laughs) you know the story i do like if you go too slowly the sand takes over and you lose control you go too quickly the sand takes over and you lose control the key is momentum right so you always want five-year momentum Mm -hmm. but is it good advice in your mind i you know what so here's the paradox because when it comes to personal finance which is my jam it's all about planning. It's all about planning. So for me to say career-wise, listen, what worked for me is not having a plan is a paradox. And so I don't know if I would give that advice to someone else. It really, I think if you, see, if you want to become a good speaker or a better speaker or you want to do whatever, I think it's pretty easy to figure out how to map out all the different things you have to do in order to get there. The hard part is the execution. It's actually doing the work, right? So what separates those who do better than everyone else? I would say 90% of the time, it comes down to just hard work. You know, you just don't give up. You, you, what's the expression? You train like you're number two. Even if you're number one, you always train like you're number two. Because once you get to the top or, you know, you, you reach a level that you're happy with, it's easier to become complacent. But if you have the mentality that you're always number two, trying to be number one, you're going to work harder. So, I mean, there's all these sayings and whatnot about how to inspire people and whatnot. But yeah, I don't know if I would give that advice. And the other thing that's uh, common between us is we're not married. We don't have kids. Yeah. And that is a big set of variables that really affects that equation. So I would not go to someone who's about to start a new family and say, hey, you know what? Don't have a five-year plan. No, you better have yeah. a five-year plan. It's all, now, you said you know, the big part of what you do is all about planning. Yeah. But you, it was neuroscience and then race car <laughs> driving. And then, then you actually had the more traditional, I work for somebody else. Right. I, I do financial planning. And then... There's the hosting, and that's come on to. And I should mention too that you you are a professional speaker as well on, right. on the world of, of personal finance or finance really in general. So let's let's take a look at that as if it's it's three. You've got neuroscience, you've got racing, yeah. and you've got the world of personal finance. Sure. What has each one of those different professions taught you about leadership? Are there commonalities? Are there different lessons that have come out from each one? What would you say you pulled from each of those backgrounds about leadership? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, So I don't frame what I talk about as necessarily leadership. For me, I mean, you could probably look at it that way in terms of, you know, personal financial leadership, right? And those three different aspects of my background, they all tie in very closely to what I talk about. So from the neuroscience, which is basically half biology and half psychology, um, that has been really important for both auto racing and personal finance. So it's interesting when you dive into a corner uh, with guys beside you like inches away and you're going, you know, 150, 200 kilometers an hour into a a right-hand turn, um, there's a lot of faith that you put in that other person. And you also, I think, can learn so much about people about how, from how they drive on a racetrack, the type of danger they're willing to put themselves in, the type of danger they're willing to put you in, in terms of the risky maneuvers they might take on the track, it's incredible what you can tell about someone's personality just from watching them and driving and racing with them. So there's a psychological component to racing, no doubt about it. 
When it comes to personal finance, what we're finding is that there's this field that uh, for uh, people in the world of academia is not new, but it's really coming to the forefront on the retail side, and that's behavioral finance. And this is basically, you know, why do we not do the things that we know we're supposed to do? So I liken it to a personal trainer. For most people, when they get a personal trainer, they get fantastic results. They get the results not because the trainer shows them a fancy new way of doing a sit-up. They just get them to do the sit-up. Right? So we know what we have to do if we want to be in better physical condition. We have to go to the gym every now and then and basically don't eat like an idiot. You do yeah. those two things, and that's 80% of the battle, right? By the way, on behalf of my trainer, I just wish I'd point out here, don't do sit-ups. But anyway, continue. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so just an analogy. Um, so the trainer, uh, you know, their function is just getting you to do what you kind of already knew you had to do, but it's just they're making you accountable. And when it comes to personal finance, it's kind of the same thing, whether it be cash flow planning, investment management, People kind of know what they have to do, but they're not doing it. So sometimes they need this perspective shift. So I, so I pull from the neuroscience, and I say personal finance is 90% psychology and 8% math. And the missing 2% is a testament to how unimportant the math is. It's really all about our perspective on money that makes the difference. So, um, And then when it comes to cars, uh, I also, when I talk to people, I use a lot of examples using cars because it's one of those emotional uh, purchases that a lot of people have. So all three of them tie in uh, and I try to change people's perspective so that they can motivate themselves. So they have this drive to actually do something different about their finances. Now, let's talk about you said you don't talk about leadership, although you can say, OK, well, I guess I talk about personal financial leadership. Right. And that's interesting is that one of the things that I'm, I'm big on is that leadership's a lot different than we talk about, right. all right? And it's odd because I said one of our last guests was, was a general. And I said, I've always said, you know, leadership isn't just being a general. And then I'm, I'm going and talking to one about it. So, <laughs> but that, what's interesting is when we first started talking and I went back to the university and I said, look, I've got this guy, he's an alumni, alumnus, sorry. And I want, uh, we want to do some personal financial management workshops in the leadership program. I got pushback mm-hmm. being like, well, well what does personal financial management have to do with leadership? Now, I know how I answered that question. Hmm. Let me put that to you. <laughs> if you had been in the room and and the person in question looked at you and said, well, I think we did like six different things. I said, I want to create an entire personal financial management workshop series within the leadership development program. And they said, what does personal financial management have to do with leadership, especially in the context of you know these young university students? If you'd been in the room, what do you tell them? <laughs> I probably would have flubbed it. I would have said, well, I don't know. I just teach people how to manage their money. Um, but what I found over time is that when people have a grip on their finances, that is, that is you are learning tools that can be applied in many different aspects of your life. So you have this sense of being out of control with your finances and you show people how to control that you are giving them some tools that they didn't have. And when something works for you in one area, you see how it might apply for you in other areas. So for example, when it comes to the planning, you know, uh, again, going back to physical fitness, for example, people, when they see the benefits of planning, like uh, meal planning, they make all their meals on Sunday and they know exactly what they're gonna eat from Monday to Saturday. That's because of planning. That's when they start to see results. That's the same thing with personal finance. So, you know, some of the, the, the fundamentals that apply to physical fitness, fiscal fitness, what have you, can apply to so many other different areas of your life to put you in more control. Now, it, what's interesting is 
because I, I used to, what I said was, that, look, we're talking about, we define leadership as striving to act every day in a way that makes it more likely you'll have a positive impact on your own life and on the lives of others. Right. And so the, what I said was, this is so, so much, we talk about empowerment and we talk about trying to give people the skills necessary to succeed. And I looked at it this way, a lack of personal financial management, what it does is it throws an anchor on everything you want to do. And I think it's some of the things that's limiting, you know, some people would love to be entrepreneurs as they come out of universities and colleges. Right. But let's say you have nothing and you take a shot at a company, you end up with nothing, but you come out down a hundred grand, you've, you've already like used up your, oh, this didn't work out. I'm in debt chip. Right. right. So very much it's like money isn't everything. But debt can be. Right. And so what would you say? We talk about day one. And I want to get down to the things you say. you you got to plan about how to, how to do anything. And we want to talk about the values. But let's say it's day one for we don't have kids. Let's pretend you've got one. Okay. And you say you've got, your book says you've got five simple rules for financial success. But let's go back to day one. Or for anyone listening now, if you want to make this day one of your finan- of personal financial management, which what it does is empower you to have the kind of freedom and ability to chase the shiny ball if you want, mm-hmm. what would you say on day one as, okay, here's some core things to bear in mind that you're, you're finding people aren't doing? Sure. Um, day one, I would say, List out, you know, the last month or two, take out your credit card statements, debit card statements, and make a, uh, a little summary of where you have spent your money and where you are spending your money. And those are your priorities. And if those are different from what you think your priority should be, there's a huge disconnect. And I see this all the time with people that say, oh, I want to save more money. You know, I want to save enough money to retire at age 65. I want to pay down my credit cards or what have you. And I look at, okay, well, show me what you're doing with your money now because those are your actual priorities. How you actually spend your money is, is reflective of your actual financial priorities. And so if there's a disconnect, we need to figure out why that is. And usually it comes down to a perspective shift. It can be a number of issues. Um, There are some people who are legitimately not earning enough money and they're just struggling to actually make ends meet. But then on the other side of the income spectrum, you've got doctors making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year living paycheck to paycheck, right? So it's not entirely a function of income. There's more to it than just that. So that's the first thing I would tell people is let's figure out what your financial priorities are versus what you think they are. And then we'll fix that problem first. And, and I think it's important, that you, like you talked about, you have to do the work. Like there are people listening who are nodding along right now. but what and they won't do it. <laughs> yeah, what they're doing is in their head, yeah. they're listing off where they spend their money. Right. And, and what they're doing is they're using their fictional budget right. to do that. What we're, what Preet, I think you're saying here is actually get out the statements oh, yeah. and see what you're doing. Because it shocked me the disconnect between my perception of where money was going and where it actually was. And what I would challenge people, if you want to do something that is maybe both fun and demoralizing, um, before you pull out your statements to see where you are spending your money currently, I, I suggest doing this exercise. Write down what you currently think you're spending on everything, like coffee, going to, out to coffee shops, eating out at restaurants, movies, all that stuff. Write down what you think you're currently spending per month then go back and check your statements and see where the disconnect is. And you would be probably sadly surprised to see how much more you're spending on purely discretionary, luxurious items. And just that exercise alone is enough for most people 
to make a change because they get disgusted. It's like, I can't believe I'm spending four grand a year going out for coffee. And some people do, believe it or not, four grand a year. So when you frame it in the context of a month or per year, people get their own motivation to make a change because that's the hard part is knowing what is going on is one thing, but then doing something different, modifying your behavior, you need to have some kind of drive. And so to create that drive, you have to create this sort of, um, mental discomfort about, you know, what you think is going on versus what is actually happening. And, uh, and that's a very powerful thing. So like I said, personal finance is 90% psychology and 8% math. It really is all about how you think about money and personal finance. And even the way you just said four grand, I'm guessing, cause I was one of them. It was like, oh, well, that, what kind of idiot does that? That's two, two coffees at anything other than Tim Hortons. A right. Day. <laughs> like that's five bucks. You know, five bucks a coffee, mm-hmm. 10 bucks, you know, every day. That's, you know, 300 bucks a month. You multiply that. There's $4,000. And yeah. that's what really shocked me is, but the, and I think this, we, you know, we'll get into the, the leadership values and living them. It's the same idea of a disconnect is that there's a block in our brain that says to us, oh, you are doing this or you're not doing this. And until someone actually presents us with the evidence. So, okay. The first step is sit down and actually pull out the statements and say, okay, where is the disconnect? What then? Okay, so now you have to figure out your plan, right? So we go back to the planning aspect. So it's similar to any Fortune 500 company, any successful company. Not only do they have a very detailed cash flow statement, they have very detailed cash flow projections. They've got all their assets and liabilities listed. Everything is done to a T. They plan, 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 plan. You would never find a publicly listed company that says, if you ask them, hey, what do you think your revenues are going to be next quarter? Oh, I don't know. It'll be what they are going to be. They're, not, never doing, they're not doing the silver ball of finance. Today. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have to create a plan. And this is where, um, again, there's the mechanics of it. Then there's the actual practicality of implementing it. So for every category that you have, you would say, all right, well, what change do I want to make here? So let me be, I'm spending... $4,000 a year on going out to coffee shops or whatever. How do I want to change that? So first of all, when it comes to the coffee shop thing, you know, you have to understand that this is as much habit as it is you thinking how much you like coffee, right? Like it is a habitual thing if you go every day, sometimes twice a day, etc. So you have to figure out how much can you save with each of these categories. And it doesn't have to be draconian. You don't say, well, I'm not going out to coffee shops anymore. Make one incremental change there, you know, and start there and see if it sticks. So instead of spending $4,000 uh, a year, maybe you want to target 3000 How do you make that work? You switch from grandes to mediums or whatever it is. That could be a solution. But Are you grandes want, mediums? I can't remember. I have no idea. Uh, Vente, Trente, something or other. The one in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Go from the big one to the one in the middle. <laughs> um or go one less time a week or yeah. one day less a week or whatever it is. You got to try and figure out how that's going to work. The problem is uh, similar to physical. So there's tons of analogies between personal finance and physical fitness. If you adopt some kind of, uh, let's say, a diet that is way too strict, you're going to curse. You're going to be uh, sad. Um, you're going to have all this pent up hunger to spend money down the road. And so maybe you you think you're doing a really tough job on yourself by denying yourself coffee. I'm just using this example. It could be anything. Denying yourself coffee. And then after a month, you're like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. Uh, or you think I've saved 
five hundred dollars. Uh, I'm doing really well with my money now. Then you go out and you buy a big screen TV for like two grand. You've completely, you've actually done worse than you were doing before, because it all comes down to the psychology of what are you denying yourself and what are you using to fill that void. So again, psychology, psychology, psychology when it comes to uh, to finances. But to get back to the original answer to your question, you got to take all those categories and see what can be adjusted. Um, the other thing is, we live in. Um, a number of different types of economies, um, which kind of sounds hokey, but one economy that is emerging is the subscription economy. So this is where um, you know companies are starting to migrate to as much as they can regular recurring uh, ways of billing you. So even take a look at like uh, Office productivity software. It used to buy Microsoft Office as a standalone package for like two hundred bucks or whatever. Now it's what is it nine ninety nine a month in perpetuity or something like that. Yeah, I was trying to buy Audition for the podcast, and you can't buy the suite. And when you could use it for three years, and then it's too slow, and you got to get the new one. Now I have to buy it monthly. Right. Yeah. It's it's it shocked me. So we we see this in a lot of places, and so automation again psychology automation can hurt us or it can help us. So the 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 sagely advice that personal finance experts give is pay yourself first right make it automatic and everyone who's done that has said yeah that was the best thing i've ever done for my finances automatically money comes out of my savings account goes into my investments whatever it's the it's also the same reason though why, why most people have their taxes deducted from their paycheck because if let's say someone's earning $50,000 a year and their tax bill is going to be 10 grand in personal income taxes for the year if they didn't have that 10000 taken off in bits and chunks every paycheck for the 52 weeks of the year, and instead the tax authority came to you at the end of the year and said, all right, so we didn't deduct taxes from you for the entire year, but now we want our ten grand. Please send us a check for 10000 bucks." Most people would not be able to come up with that money. You mean what's happening to me next month? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, right. So it's because of that automation, taking the taxes off payroll or putting it away for your investments, that is so, so incredibly powerful. But the same thing is happening now with the subscription economy. So we have all these different subscriptions. So when you're going over your credit cards and debit card statements, look at all the things that come out automatically. And I'm telling you this, no word of a lie, everyone I've told to audit those regular recurring expenses and see what can be eliminated, reduced, or what have you, on average, people are saving over $100 a month, getting rid of stuff that they didn't even know that they subscribe to anymore, or they've got a gym membership they haven't been in six months, or they've got a Netflix subscription and they subscribe to the Ultra HD option even though they don't have a 4K TV, right? Because they just didn't know any better. So that's, in that example, that's only like a savings of $2 a month. Uh, but when it comes to your insurance policies, all these things where you could just take one day out of the year and call up and say, hey, can I get a better deal on this? On average, you're going to save $100 a month by going through all those and seeing how you can eliminate them. And you could just transfer that immediately into savings, and you got 1200 bucks a year. That's exact. That is the whole key, is you have to save the savings. So this is, an, again, where people fall apart. You find all the savings, you think, oh, great, now we can buy $100 more worth of stuff every month. No, no, no. What you want to do is you want to convert those automatic expenses that weren't very efficient into new automatic savings, which is going to transform your finances in, in many cases for a lot of people. And it's this, it's this unconscious idea. And there, you talk about analogies between racing, between uh, physical fitness and personal finance, which is why I wanted to talk to you today. Because you know, in our conversations, I've seen so much between the type of leadership I believe in, and it's the same analogy as well, that there's a capability here. Nothing is beyond individual's capacity. It's that there's 
a lot of unconscious things that are happening and that is unconscious behaviors, but also these unconscious blocks, which is like, oh, I'm not going to change the way I drink coffee because I don't spend $4,000 a year or even $2,000 a year. But all of a sudden you say, let's say you're stopping at Tim Hortons. It's five bucks every morning. Like once again, you know, that's 20, let's say it's 20 times a, there's, you know, a thousand dollars or $1,200. People have this thing saying I'm not doing it. And I think, uh, that is as dangerous as you know the things that you are doing is the things that you've unconsciously convinced yourself. Oh well, that's not a part of who I am. So that's what I love is the idea of habit forming. So let's talk a little bit. Let's shift into the world. We'll go back. I have a couple more finance questions for you of of personal behavior mm-hmm. and and talk about the day one idea. So I always love digging into when people have have had success and whatever it is. And you have, I mean, you've had a, you followed the silver ball, but one of the things I think that's important when we talked about, well, is follow the silver ball career or the shiny ball career concept is that it may seem as if there isn't a plan, but what there is, is a commitment to sticking to certain principles on a daily basis, which means whatever, wherever you are, like whatever you're doing, who you are is staying somewhat consistent. So let me ask you that. The, the magic question, what are the values that drive you? The 30-day the, the question. If someone followed you around for 30 days and I said, what are the key values that drive Preet Banerjee? What three values do you hope that person says drive you? And this, you know, to allow you to, you know, be the guy that Peter Mansridge turns to to talk to about money that allows Money Sense Magazine or the Globe and Mail to say this is a man to listen to when it comes to money that have given you the opportunity to, to have some freedom in your life. What values drive that man? Uh, that is a great question. Um, near the top of my list would have to be, and this may sound strange, but competence. Um, and I, what I mean by that is, um, you know, thoroughness. And if you're going to do something, do it, right? Don't be half-assed about it. Um, whatever task that is, so whatever direction that shiny ball is bouncing, if you're going to follow it, you know, it shouldn't be just, oh, and you'll follow it and then fade away from it and find something else. So there's, I guess there's that paradox of the shiny ball again. So, you know, for me, it's worked out, but only because I follow through on the execution when I follow, decide to follow where that shiny ball is bouncing. So when it comes to, for example, commentating on, on personal finance issues or what's going on with people's money, you know, in the respect of the economy and all this stuff, that is a real privilege, and an honor to be asked to have that sort of pedestal. And that is not something I take lightly. So, you know, when I know that I'm going to be giving my thoughts um, for people to be able to better digest this news in the context of their personal finances, I have to be thorough. So I have to look at not only what I personally believe, but also what everyone who might be on the other side of that conversation believes and put it all into context. And the only way you can do that is by being competent. So competent is not just, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. It's making sure you cover all the bases. And um, along with that, you have to be balanced. So uh, especially when you're um, making comments in, in, in media and whatnot, and we see this with social media too. There are so many detractors. There's so many people who are very loud on either sides of the spectrum. And what I try to do is I try not to get worked up about these things. I think my responsibility is not to give people an opinion. It's to give them information so that they can form their own opinions. Because opinions, or sorry, opinions are individual things. So the first thing is competence, thoroughness, and balance. The other thing, which is kind of separate, is um, prioritization. 
And I say that because, so I, I lead a pretty lucky life. So these days, you know, I'm self-employed um, and uh, my schedule is very irregular. And because seven or eight years ago now, I was really ill to the point of I legitimately thought I was going to die. That is a funny way of changing your perspective on life. So ever since then, my perspective on how much should I be working and how much should I be enjoying life really changed. So it's really kind of flip-flopped. And so now I put a real priority on enjoying life, which doesn't necessarily mean traveling the world and spending a lot of money. I find joy in the simple little pleasures of life, like coffee. So we're here uh, in uh, in my condo, and uh, the coffee we were drinking, I roasted the beans. Mm-hmm. You know, I grind them to a specific uh, coarseness, tamp them to a specific pressure. I take real pleasure in the process of actually making coffee. And just as a side personal finance note, when you buy unroasted beans, you cut your cost of coffee production down by like 60%. So not only is it a hobby, it saves me money. (laughs) And and this is also the only place that I ever drink black coffee. Oh, really? Oh, it's... There is a lot of competence in this cup of coffee, my goodness. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, that, so this is one of my faults is I'm partially OCD. So when I do something, I really do it sometimes to the point of, all right, this is a bit irrational. You're spending way too much time researching how to roast coffee. But. Can you be partially obsessive compulsive? Like that is an interesting use of the English language. See, if you ask I'm me that question, you ask me that question. And after this interview, I'm going to be thinking about that obsessively <laughs> as to whether or not you can be partially obsessive compulsive. Oh. So we've got competence, prioritization. Mm -hmm. What's the third one? So the third one is kind of tied into prioritization, which is embracing um, life and and experiences. So I'm a big believer in not accumulating stuff, but accumulating experiences. And part of the reason is, you know, we spend a lot of money buying stuff. Actually, I'll give you an example. So on Million Dollar Neighborhood, um, the premise of the show it was a 10-week personal finance boot camp. And we had 100 families, and the goal was to increase their collective net worth by um, $1 million. So every week we had this $100,000 goal. Very tough set of challenges, right? Um, but one of the exercises that we have was decluttering and get rid of stuff to get people to think more about how they spend their money and what's truly important. So we had this 100-family garage sale. And everyone had to take stuff out of their house and collectively put in this huge big yard and have a big yard sale for the city of Bowmanville where the uh, show was shot. And in the span of four hours, they sold something like it was seventy three dollars or $74,000 worth of stuff that people were not using anymore, right? It's just stuff that accumulates that we bought. We never use it. So, you know, everyone goes through the fad of buying a bread maker, ice cream maker, whatever. You think you're going to use it every time, um, you know, once a month or whatever. Use it three times exactly, and then it just gets stored under a shelf somewhere gathering dust. So everyone has this stuff, and we don't need it, right? So um, experiences are a little bit different. So here's another example tying to two cars. So I am a car guy. Like you cannot find a bigger fan of all things automotive than me. I mean, I at one point tried to become a professional race car driver. So I live downtown. 
I don't have my own personal car anymore. And when I was going through that decision of do I need a car, I thought, well, but I'm a car guy, so I should have a car even though it may not make financial sense, blah, 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 blah. And eventually I said, this is stupid. You know, the car, having a car in downtown Toronto is actually more of an inconvenience than anything else. We've got Uber, we've got public taxis, uh, we've got public transit. You can walk everywhere downtown. There's no reason to have a car. You've got car sharing services, no reason to have a car. So I don't care too much about not having that car. That being said, being a car guy, I will happily go down to Las Vegas and spend thousands of dollars renting a race car that I can drive at 200 miles an hour on a racetrack for like half a day. Right, So that is a huge cost, given the amount of time involved. But that experience cannot be duplicated on public roads, nor should it be. (laughs) (laughs) For me, if I had the means to buy a Ferrari or a fleet of Ferraris, why would I do that? Where would I take it where I could enjoy what that car has to offer? The speed limit is the same for a Ferrari as it is for a Volkswagen Rabbit. Right. So for me, you know, the experiences are much more important. I mean, because they don't happen all that often, the overall cost actually is lower than if I had, you know, a, a standard basic um, car. What's interesting is the idea of so we got competence, prioritization. And how would you say that last value was is, is the value of experiences or what is the core value behind what you were just telling us there? I think it's an appreciation um, not only of, of experiences over stuff. But also an appreciation, you know, living in the country that we live in, having the lifestyles that we have, to really sit back and think, you know what, compared to 90% of the people on this planet, man, do we ever have it good. Like, honestly, if someone living in Canada, I would say 95% of people living in Canada, complain about how tough their life is, you got to take a step back and put it into the perspective. Like, if you have not traveled the world and seen the type of suffering, the political instability... Uh, that exists around the world, you need to have a different perspective on the world. So I think taking stock of just how lucky we are is a really important thing when you are as lucky as we are. And I think it's it's important too. One of the, our former guests, Glenn Kalman uh, from Redfin, I read an article of his leading up to it where he said, you know, if he had to talk to his 22-year-old self, he would talk about the importance of experiences over stuff. Hmm. But also to make sure that the experiences had a point. Right. He's just like, oh, you're going out and you're gaining experiences, but make sure that you become someone first or that at least the experiences are designed to say, okay, I'm going to take this and feed this into my ability to be more competent. I'm going to feed this into my ability to prioritize. Because like you just said, travel. And when you come back from traveling and you realize how incredibly blessed we are to live in this country, you say, okay, I'm going to prioritize recognizing my luck and my privilege, even though that does, that may mean that you still have to work hard and you've got to pay your bills, sure. but it's still a privilege like to have to worry about what you're going to do with your personal finances is a gift that the vast majority of, of people on the planet don't get. Right. So the idea of how do we use, like, do you have a strategy? I don't know if you ever thought of this when you say, okay, I want to gather experiences. How do you do that effectively? How do you decide this is an experience we're spending money on? This is an experience that maybe it doesn't make total financial sense, but what it's going to do is feed into making me a better person. Do you use any form way to evaluate that, you know, this is something worth doing? Um, no, I've never really sat down and consciously thought about, you know, what experiences do I choose? But to give you an example, so, uh, so we're in, in my uh, rented home here. 
and um, you know I could afford a much more extravagant place to live. Um, but what extra joy would I get out of that? Not not a lot. And this is a pretty nice place. So you know, if when it comes to traveling, if I wanted the experience of what it's like to live it up, one night fine, but not every night. That's the problem. You know, when it comes to how much house people want to buy, they really stretch themselves and they limit their ability to do a lot of other things in their life. And so, you know, when it comes to experiences versus accumulating stuff and whatnot, that's kind of the framework I look at as I, I say, well, what is it that I or my partner want? And then I say, okay, so do we need to own this forever in order to enjoy that, ex- that experience or ownership? Or can we find a different way that will satisfy psychologically what you're trying to get out of that and use the money that we save to do other things? And when it comes to the travel, I think it, it you really hit on a good point. Like I think you really do have to maybe not travel the world, but even travel to areas in Canada, even neighborhoods where people are um, don't have the same advantages that uh, other people do to really appreciate um, the differences that exist between the circles that we exist in and other circles that exist out there. Uh, and so that's all about that perspective. You can't have that perspective unless you actually experience what it's like not outside your circle. All right, everybody, I'm going to jump in here. This is Drew in the editing room putting this week's episode together. And as you've no doubt realized, Preet is a pretty fascinating and engaging guy. And as such, the two of us actually talked for hours for this interview. And so there is way too many insights that he provided to fit into a single episode. So what I've decided to do for this week's podcast is I'm going to break it up into two parts. And this brings us to the end of part one. Up until this point, we've talked about Preet's expertise, personal financial management. We've talked about how it relates to leadership. We've talked about the insights that he'd like to share with you when it comes to how to manage your finances. Now in the interview, though, we shift gears and we start talking about the day one concept, what Preet would do if he could go back to day one and start building himself into the person and the leader that he wants to be, what kind of actions he'd begin taking on day one to start taking care of his finances the way he knows he can now, and what advice he would give to himself if he could sit down across from a 13-year-old version of himself. That's all going to be in part two of the episode, which again, we're going to have up tomorrow. In the meantime, what I'd like to do is I want to give away some free copies of Preet's book, Stop Overthinking Your Money, which is the five simple rules of financial success. If you like what you've heard so far, this is an amazing book filled with practical and easy to implement ideas that's going to put you more in control of your financial life. Also, they're all autographed by Preet. He was nice enough to do that after the interview. If you'd like a free copy of Stop Overthinking Your Money by Preet Banerjee, here's what we'd like you to do. First of all, I hope you're already following us on Twitter. It's at Day One Leadership. That's D-A-Y, the number one and leadership. So at Day One Leadership with the number one. If you haven't followed us, do it now. But we'd like you to do is we'd like you to tweet at us your least favorite cultural cliche. Now, a cultural cliche is a piece of advice or a mantra or a quotation that keeps getting repeated as if it's good advice. But in your opinion, it actually is deeply flawed. I asked Preet specifically, what's his least favorite cultural cliche? And here's a bit of a preview on how he answers that question from tomorrow's episode. Oh, oh, this one's simple, YOLO. YOLO? YOLO, you only live once. Because I think people grossly misinterpret um, 
the real essence of that saying, you only live once, is used as a justification to do things that are stupid, <laughs> right? Whereas I see it as you only live once, so don't screw it up. So once again, if you want a free copy of Preet Banerjee's Stop Overthinking Your Money, all you have to do is tweet us your least favorite cultural cliche to at Day One Leadership on Twitter. Again, that's at D-A-Y, the number one leadership on Twitter. Share with us what you think is a piece of advice that people should just stop giving. What we'll do is after we air part two tomorrow, we're going to randomly select four different individuals who have tweeted their least favorite cultural cliche. We'll touch base with you and we'll get you a free copy of Stop Overthinking Your Money. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this week's podcast. I'm going to be back tomorrow with part two of the episode. I'm Drew Dudley. This is day one. Every day is day one. Thanks for listening.